James Altucher, question of the day for you. Oh my God, but I might not have the answer. I'm really nervous now. I think you'll be pretty good at this one. I have a little bit to say about this one, but I'm guessing you do too. This one comes from Quora. Comes from Quora. Although this could be from anywhere. This is one of the most generic questions. Why, but I feel, why is the sky blue? No, that'd be a good question. for. I, don't that, think I feel like that is good. the most generic question ever. Yeah. Why is the sky blue? Do you know the answer? I, I feel like this is the sort of question you ask your daddy. Because it reflects, a, it's a spectrum of light passing through stratosphere. Blah, I have no idea. I, I don't know. I was given a talk the other day. Okay. okay, wait. Speaking of which, why did you arrive here today wearing a suit? I've never seen you in like even a quasi suit before. You didn't have a tie, but you had the rest of the trappings of a suit. So I'm assuming in your backpack is a tie. Am I correct? No tie. No tie. So you didn't wear a tie. Did not wear a tie. So why were you wearing like all? Why were you all dressed up though? I am wearing a suit today because before coming to the radio studio to record Question of the Day with you, I had lunch with an old friend of mine. Um, I'm sure he's been the president of something at some point. This was an old friend and mentor and boss of mine. This is my former boss at the New York Times uh, magazine. Um, and he invited me to go to lunch. We hadn't lunched in a long time, and we lunched at the Harvard Club where you have to wear a jacket because it's a it's the Harvard Club. I am so impressed. Nobody invites me to the Harvard Club. The head of the New York Times. Well, he went to Harvard. I am. He went to Harvard. That's why he invites me to the Harvard. You know, Club. I ordered delivery sushi. Did I, they make I, you put on a suit to claim? No, it? and I had writer's block. I was miserable, and then I came here. So unparalleled experiences is what right. you're saying. But but you look good in a suit. You, you you dress up well. It was a fun lunch because he's a smart interesting guy, obviously. He won a Pulitzer years ago. I believe he won a Pulitzer. What, what did you learn from the lunch? A couple things. It was really interesting that we haven't seen each other for real in many years. Uh, he retired, and I left the Times to write books and, and whatnot. And what was so much fun is when you work with someone in a certain kind of enterprise, like in this case, you know, journalism or, you know, anything that's maybe, you know, creative or, you know, business, sports team, whatever, the camaraderie that you have and the kind of mind meld that you have, you pick it up just like that. And so it was as if, I mean, he was, he, when I started working there at the times, I was probably, um, 30 or 31, so I was relatively young. And he was a guy who, you know, won awards and was very senior. And so he would take me then to the Harvard Club once in a while. And it was, in, you know, a little bit intimidating, but also really exciting to, to, you know, spend time with a guy like that. And so today, what was great is it was still as exciting. It just wasn't as intimidating. And, and the exciting part is that we just had a two and a half hour conversation that was exactly like the kind of stuff we used to talk about before, which is basically what journalists do. You talk about what you've learned, what you're trying to find out, what kind of people are doing interesting stuff that hasn't been, you know, discussed enough and so on. And so that was a lot of fun, but it also made me very grateful if a given person can run across two or three people in their lives who are really great teachers slash mentors, they're lucky if you can get even just a couple. And he was one. I so. think that's a good point. It's great that you still have a relationship with him because I find often mentor-mentee relationships don't last as friendships. But you didn't answer my initial question, which is tell me one thing you learned from the lunch. 
Um, so I learned a lot of small things that I wouldn't want to choose as the one thing I learned. Um, give me any. I'll give you, you know, he's working on this project. He does a lot of philanthropy now. He's working on this one project to distribute free MiFi generators. What do you call them? To create a hotspot anywhere through the public library system in schools because it turns out that a lot of kids... Basically, even if they have a computer or device, that they don't have access to the web fully at home. So that was um, so. Oh, he talked about this scholar whose work he's presenting, who has uh, an alternative theory to the JFK assassination. Oh, what's a theory? Has something to do with the third shot, and that it may have occurred during the little gap in the Zapruder film, and that it may have hit the top of a lamppost. Uh, so it's a conspiracy theory still. It, it, it's kind of an anti-conspiracy conspiracy theory. Because, you know, conspiracy theories are about another shooter, the grassy knoll, and so on. And this is kind of a more natural explanation of how there could have been a third bullet, apparently. Oh, I see. So the third bullet could still have come from Lee Harvey Correct. Oswald. Correct. Apparently, that's my understanding. Wouldn't they know that from the initial investigation of the gun, how many times it was fired? When you think? I don't know. I'm not an expert. I'm not even an inexpert on the JFK assassination. Okay. Something, um, something me, to look up. You know, he was very interested in learning about podcasting. So, okay. So here's what I learned. That if you're a smart person of a certain type, like my friend Jack Rosenthal is then you ask a lot more questions of the other person and don't talk about yourself so much. That's what I learned because we got to the end of the lunch and I said to Jack, you know, you've done, once again, a very good job of not talking about yourself at all. So what the hell have you been up to for these past many years? Because he asked me questions about everything that I've been doing for the past 10 or 15 years. So he learned a lot. Including podcasting, yeah. Yeah. So he learned all about podcasting, book publishing. Although I will say this, we were both taking a lot of notes. This is what you do when you have lunch with a friend who knows a lot of stuff. So here, you know, I got my notes here, but I think that he probably took even more notes. Oh, he did tell me about an interesting paper. So we were talking about early education uh, and different kinds of interventions, preschool and even pre-preschool. And, and he knew quite a bit. of This is something I know a fair amount about, and he knew quite a bit about as well. And, you know, famously, a lot of these interventions, while they might work for a little while, they tend to wear off. So like Head Start seems to truly make low-income children more prepared for school. By the way, I went to Head Start. I was, uh, I think, the charter year of Head Start. So I came from a low-income family where I was uh, given the ability to go to this preschool, and I went. It was in the Rainbow Room on the campus of Duanesburg Central School in upstate New York. So anyway, Head Start has been shown to make low-income children more school-ready than similar kids who don't get to go to preschool. But turns out that the effect is not long-lived, right? That's been the knock on Head Start and similar programs for many, many years. Jack today told me about a study. Now, I'm going to have to look it up because I told it's hard to believe. And I told him I'm not quite sure if I believe it. But he said that even though most of the follow-on study shows that Head Start does not have a lasting effect, there's a new study. There's always a new study. There's a new study that if you look at people like in their 40s, that they do have better outcomes as a result of Head Start. So like Head Start makes you ready for school and then you fall back to the mean or maybe below the mean. But then, according to him, there's some new research that says that there's this kind of magical head start boomerang effect where later in life, you really it really does pay off. Why do you think that happens? Well, like I said, I don't believe it to be true. I'm going to have to look up that research and find out if it's legit and robust and if there are real data. Because, you know, look, this is what I spend my days doing, hearing about, asking about, reading about research 
most of which turns out to be either uninteresting or untrue. But you know, the, the goal is to either make your life or the lives of the people around you better. So like knowing that- You're saying or asking? No, I'm, I'm saying. Because like, for instance, knowing that about Boomerang- well, I like to make the lives of some people around me worse, but <laughs> mostly better. N- knowing the rules of uh, what he said about that boomerang effect might make me think if I was a young father that, oh, I'll put my kid through some sort of intensive educational program early on, not because of the effect it will have on him in second or third grade, but because maybe it'll make him uh, have this boomerang effect at the age of 40. Absolutely. If, you know, but that's it's where true. it's nice to know if it's true. And, you know, a lot of social science research like this, people don't understand. They love the headline. They love the takeaway. But when you read the research and when you talk to the researchers, which is, you know, that's what I get to do on, on Freakonomics Radio is basically talk to people doing this kind of very woolly, thorough research and it's woolly and thorny because it's real people with real interventions but you know if you want to do a perfect randomized controlled trial on people that's hard to do and you don't want to introduce bad elements to good people and um, you don't want to deprive other people of the potential benefits so there aren't as many real experiments that give us concrete answers along those lines mm-hmm. as we might mm-hmm. wish and that's something that the media does not help with they actually exacerbate it I feel right. and that the public doesn't understand very well and that politicians are the worst After a quick break, we'll get back to our regularly scheduled programming. Do you love our show? Do you love Amazon? Well, we have a way that you can support our show and the network that brings us to you, Earwolf.com, while also enjoying your usual Amazon shopping. The next time you want to shop at Amazon, don't go to Amazon.com. Take the insider route instead. Go to Earwolf.com slash Amazon. That'll take you to the same Amazon you know and love with all the great Amazon.com prices you know and love, but you'll also help us out by helping us support our show. You don't have to pay an extra dime, but question of the day gets credit from Amazon and it really adds up and helps us keep the engineers happy and the microphones turned on. So remember, go to Earwolf.com slash Amazon. Go ahead and bookmark that puppy too. Then every time you need to buy batteries or a Kindle or a television or a cardigan. Cardiogram or a cardigan? Cardigan. All right. Or a last Do they have cardiograms on Amazon? I hope so. I want to start. That's better than my health insurance probably. Or a last second present for your loved one's birthday. You use our special link and help us earn cash at the same time. You get your favorite Amazon deals and we feel your extra love via the affiliate arrangement we have with Amazon. That's a win-win. Hooray! So the reason I asked you uh, what you learned in lunch is I read this story about Sergey Brin, the founder of Google, along with Larry Page. Sergey Brin would interview people, and within seconds, he would know whether he was going to hire them or not. But he still stuck with them for like the 45 minutes of the interview, let's say if he knew he was not going to hire them. He would say to himself, okay, I'm not going to hire this person, but I'm going to make sure I at least learn one thing from this person. So he would ask question after question after question just to learn one thing for himself. And so and, I thought that was admirable. And did admirable. he feel it was worth that extra 44 minutes? I've never asked him, but since he kept that as a, a policy for himself, I assume he did. So that's a really, I, I like that strategy because, you know, he's respecting the person even though they're not going to get a job and making them feel like they got their fair hearing. But I will say this, I really enjoyed my lunch with my old boss slash editor. Oh, by the way, uh, related to that, do you believe in this theory, you know, and Keith Ferrazzi wrote this great book, Never Eat Alone, 
Do you believe that just for networking, like clearly you were doing some networking, meeting an old boss from 20 years ago? I would disagree. I would say this was the opposite of networking. Because he's a friend. Well, but also, like, we patently had nothing that we're working toward. There was no kind of businessy, networky motive. No, but, you all. know, in general, people you meet in a business context and then meet later in a business context, it's kind of like planting the seeds of potential. You don't know what the end results are going to be. But let's just say we I disagree looked at on this, that. I looked at this lunch in the opposite way. I looked at it as I wasn't trying to get or accomplish or whatever, anything. That, that's fine. But you believe I'm not it? a networker. But so the book is titled Never, Never Eat, eat lunch, Alone. Yeah. Do you believe that you should never eat alone? No, I eat alone almost every day. But look, everybody's you're, de- you're a lonely and look, sad I'm guy. I'm just not. You're just never gonna persuade me to join the tribe, the large tribe. I realize I'm a minority here, but I don't like business that much. I hate to say it. It's and I'm not anti-business at all. I just personally don't like it. I don't like to. You know, I've toyed a little bit with like being in on consulting where you go into these firms. And I, I don't like the culture of business very much. That that feeling that you have to convince Tuck somebody. Tuck in your shirt. Yeah. I don't like meetings. I don't like hierarchies. I don't like bosses. I, I don't like any of that. I'm a, I'm, it's just not my thing. Now, I recognize that I, that runs contrary to the way most of the world works. So I'm just saying that's not my thing. So, like, net, when I he, literally, when I hear the word networking, I want to puke. Now, I don't puke. I'm not a big puker in reality. So, um, but I mentally puke. I puke uh, in my brain. I'm very, I would say, somewhat introverted, meaning not, it has nothing to do with being social or not. It's, I re energize or I recharge better by myself than with others. But I do uh, appreciate the effect of having l- physical face to face lunch with people and meeting them and hearing their problems and learning from them and me teaching or learning. And even when I can't do, a physical face-to-face lunch, I sometimes try to do Skype lunches. So I get the sandwich, and I bring it to the computer, and I Skype my friend, and we're eating. Instead of in a restaurant, we're eating together, and and it's over Skype. Are you sure you're as much of an introvert as you think you are? I'm not sure, but I, I know that I definitely do not recharge my energy mm. in, in with a group of people around me. Yeah. You know, Having lunch with this old boss of mine today did make me want to ask a question of you. Tell, tell me. A question of the day, which is tell me one quick story uh, about the best boss you ever had. The best boss? But I didn't realize that wasn't formed as a question. No, no, no. James, I'll, would you please tell me one I'll quick tell, story I'll, about the best boss you ever he had? He was the best boss and the worst boss, but I'll tell you why he was the best boss. And it's a quick answer. He um, let me run wild. So he realized I had ideas around a certain trend. So this was like 20 years ago. The internet was just starting out. And the trend was the internet? The trend was the internet. The company was HBO. And he realized that HBO needed some internet presence, but he knew nothing about the internet. And he just let me run wild, do whatever I wanted to do. He would approve everything. He would fight every battle for me, so I never had to fight it. The only deal was I gave him full credit for everything. So that was like part of the arrangement, kind of implicit. Did you come to resent that? No, I didn't because I, I loved doing what I was doing at that point. I hated doing what I was doing before then. Once he let me run wild and and just trusted that I was going to do the best for him and, and it took me maybe four or five months of working for him to develop that trust and project after project, you know, working out, uh, I really appreciated that I had a boss that I didn't have to run ever, anything by him. I went over his head many times um, to get approval for things, and he just let me do whatever, and I gave him full credit, and that was a good boss. My best boss was an editor at a magazine who was the best because he had great taste, 
which I realized is really important. And like you can dismiss it and say it's about style or preferences, but like having great taste when you're in a creative field, whether it's writing, music, whatever, is hugely important. And you can get better taste by hanging around with people who have good taste. So it was good in that way. He was also the hardest boss I've ever had to please. So he like never seemed satisfied. And yet, ironically or seemingly, counterintuitively, almost everybody who ever worked for him loved working for him because when he was, when he said something like, you know, that piece wasn't bad or that was pretty good, it was really hard to earn legitimate praise. And so you really knew where you stood. And additionally, it felt really good to do that well. But then the best thing I ever learned from him, it was during an annual review. And I'd had what I thought was a pretty good year. So I was a young um, editor at the New York Times Magazine. My output was large, and I thought I was doing pretty well. And he said, you know, you're doing pretty well, but let's talk about where you really suck. He basically said, like, I could sit here and talk for an hour about how great you're doing, but let's instead talk about what you're not great at, okay? Which initially, you know, initially I think, well, give me at least like five minutes of the how great I am part. No, but, but I like that he respected you enough to get right into oh, it. Oh, yeah, I did too. And then the lesson he taught me was really good, which is he said, you have a propensity to want to save and rescue and fix projects, so you'll assign a story or you'll come up with an idea, whatever, and then you get it out there. And the way it worked is I was an editor. I would assign a writer to do it. And then sometimes it would come in like the day of deadline and it'd be a total train wreck. And then I'd stay up all night rewriting it or editing it or whatever. And I always got it done because, you know, I liked it and I was pretty good at it and it meant a lot to me. I took my responsibility very seriously. He said, but if you were like a quarter as good at working the front end the way you are at saving the back end, you're going to be a lot better as a writer and as an as an editor. What as does it mean, a, saving the front end? Like picking the right person? Picking the, the right, right person, picking the right idea, thinking a few moves down the road. How's this idea going to play out? This is our plan for reporting. And this, look, I'm talking about magazine or book writing now, but this could be about anything. It basically... It's it could a little be bit, about relationships. It look could for, easily be about relationships. Look for, in the beginning, for the qualities you want in a wife as opposed to hoping to change them later. Do you know about the notion of the pre-mortem? Have you ever heard of that phrase? No. So a pre-mortem is this really, this concept I like a lot that can be applied to anything. And I found, we once mentioned this in a, a tiny passage in one Freakonomics book. I think it was in Think Like a Freak. And it's remarkable how many people wrote singling out this one little thing. They said, I used it and it works great. So basically, a pre-mortem is instead of a postmortem where after something has gone wrong and then you figure out who's to blame for it, a premortem is you gather all the people around for your project, whatever it is, and maybe it's two people, maybe it's a hundred people, and you say, okay, we're about to launch this product or to release this or to do this or to spend all this money, whatever. And of course we're all hoping for success. Of course we are. We wouldn't have worked this hard if we weren't. But let's for one or two hours just imagine that rather than coming out of the gate and succeeding, this thing comes out and totally fails, okay? Now, and there's a number of ways you can do this, but anonymously is really good. Anonymously, everybody spend the next whatever, half hour, hour, writing down the ways in which 
and why this thing would have failed. It's a pre-mortem. And did you see um, results? Like, did poor projects actually improve from... So I haven't done... I, I don't work in the kind of environment where I could necessarily use a pre-mortem like this, but a lot of people who do in corporations and in institutions who are doing this kind of big project where you've got a launch and you're trying to fight off what's called go fever, right? That's what NASA calls it. Like, once you've announced the launch date, whether it's a rocket or a project, it takes, like, uh, an act of God to make you step down from that. But rather than just giving in to go fever, run this pre-mortem. And it turns out to be incredibly effective for the reason that, A, you may decide this project that we think is going to be successful will actually fail, and you decide to not do it. So that may be one reason. But a more common and more fruitful reason that it works is that you'll identify for real the flaws that some people were thinking about, but everybody was kind of scared to say because it might reflect poorly on someone or the boss or whatever. But if enough people think that if this fails, this is going to be the reason why, then you can address that reason and redirect your project in time to save it. And so what my boss was teaching me was kind of a version of the pre-mortem, which if you can work harder on the front end to anticipate the way this is going to go as a writer... It's then you don't have to rush in, save it at the end. Because, you know, any writing that you do at 11 at night or 4 in the morning to make your deadline, I don't want to say it's always going to be worse, but it, it, it's hard to imagine that you're going to produce a better result because of that. You know what I'm going to do? I do not. I'm going to do a pre-mortem on the rest of my life. Wow. Right now? Tomorrow. I'm going to put it off till tomorrow. And uh, will you share with us the results? No, it's my pre-mortem. I'm going from here to death. But the problem is, don't you want some other people giving you input, like a pre-mortem intervention? (laughs) Don't forget to join us for our first ever live question of the day. It'll be Thursday, January 14th in Brooklyn at The Bell House. The website is thebellhouseny.com. Thursday, January 14th, 7 p.m. with special guest Nagin Farsad. And James and I will be trying a little bit, a tiny bit of stand-up comedy for the first time, plus which we will do a live question of the day with your questions. So tweet them to us beforehand at QOD and use the hashtag QOD live. Last thing, don't forget to subscribe to Question of the Day on iTunes. While you're there, take a second to rate the show or write a review. And be sure to catch the next question of the day, which will go something like this. How do I improve my personal finances? Well, what does that mean? Well, that's always a good question. What does that mean to you? What does the question mean? How do you make more money? How do you save your money? Well, there's three skills to money. Save it, make it, steal it. No. Well, close. 